What you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. Also, these are not the droids you're looking for. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it still ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, and in Cottage Grove on KSO. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, in Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day, so it's really hard to uh, ignore us, but you can try. On the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. This is your Bradcast, and welcome to it. I know it seems like uh, a million years ago, at least in Trump time, but in reality time, it was really just over a week ago or so that... Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin held a uh, joint press conference in Helsinki, Finland. Doesn't that seem like forever ago? Yeah, Desi about five Dwayne? years ago, yeah, actually. No, just, I would say. just over a week. Are you sure? Yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, you recall he uh, Trump refused to support the U.S. intelligence and law enforcement assessments, allegations and indictments. Charging that Russia, under the direction of President Putin, undertook criminal cyber attacks on the U.S. election infrastructure in order to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election on behalf of Donald Trump. In the wake of that summit that was just over a week ago, uh, many, including former CIA director John Brennan, suggested that Trump's behavior at the summit was, quote, Nothing short of treasonous. Really? Really? Treasonous? According to the U.S. Constitution, if you believe in such things, treason can only be committed in collusion with an enemy with whom we are actually at war. So are we now at war with Russia, as Brennan's Brennan's comments and those who charge that Trump committed treason would seem to be suggesting. Well, obviously, there has been no official declaration of war by this Congress. So is it possible that we could be at war now anyway, even without such a declaration? And if so, did Donald Trump commit a violation of the law and the Constitution that is actually punishable by death? 
as treason is. Yep, it all seems absurd on uh, so many levels uh, and, and almost impossible to wrap one's brain around. And in fact, the uh, charge of treason, if not high crimes and misdemeanors, the bar for impeaching a sitting president, in fact, that charge may in fact be absurd. Or, I don't know, maybe it isn't. Uh, but might it lead us closer to a hot war with Russia in any event, all of these calls and uh, charges of treason, if uh, Democrats can continue to insist on uh, that argument, we'll be joined by Bradblog.com legal analyst Ernest A. Canning shortly. Uh, he wrote about the issue this week, the issue of treason and what is and isn't treason to discuss that uh, and a few late breaking and I think uh, some encouraging court decisions in two separate states regarding the uh, November midterm elections, uh, Ernie will be here to talk about all of that in a little bit. But yes, as we continue down this increasingly bizarre rabbit hole, Des, I think I changed plans for today's show at least five times <laughs> uh, to the point that at this point, I don't actually have any. <laughs> OK, we'll see how it goes. But anyway, this bizarre rabbit hole uh, that we're all now down and inside of uh, in the Trump era, this will end at some point, right? Right. Um, New York Times reports on the first couple's recent trip overseas to that summit in Helsinki. Uh, Melania Trump's television aboard Air Force One was tuned to CNN. And President Trump was not pleased about it. He raged at his staff for violating a rule that the White House entourage should begin each trip tuned to Fox News, his preferred network over what he considers to be the fake news CNN. And he quote, caused, quote, a bit of a stir aboard Air Force One. That, according to an actual email exchange between officials in the White House military and communications offices that was obtained by the New York Times. At the end of the email chain, they report officials confirmed that tuning the TVs to Fox would now be standard operating procedure going forward. The channel flipping flap was the latest example of how Donald Trump, at a pivotal moment in his presidency, is increasingly living in a world of selected information and bending the truth to his own narrative. As his aides work to keep him insulated from the outside world, Trump is doubling down in his efforts to tell supporters to trust him over the words of critics and of news reports. Speaking at the annual convention of the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the VFW, VFW in Kansas City, Missouri, on Tuesday, Trump said, said to, uh, to the veteran attendees, quote, stick with us, don't believe the crap you see from these people, indicating the media there, calling them the fake news, as he does. That, of course, elicited cheers from many in the hall and boos, presumably, for the media assembled to cover what Trump was actually saying before he then added. What you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. What you're seeing and what you're reading is not what's happening. Don't believe what you're actually seeing, what you're actually hearing, what you can see in front of your own eyes. Yes, he actually said that. 
And by the way, the VFW after that, uh, whatever it was, rally speech, I don't know what it was. The VFW actually apologized for their own members because their own members ended up booing after uh, one of his uh, statements on the, uh, you know, the crap from you see from these people, the fake news. They actually ended up booing and the VFW had to say, well, we support the media. They've been very supportive of us and they listed all of these mainstream media outlets. And so we are sorry about those people who booed. They weren't sorry that they invited the president of the United States, who has been beating the crap out of those corporate uh, media outlets now for months, years at this point. They weren't sorry for uh, giving him a stage in which to do that, in which to attack the media that he has described as the nation's number one enemy, the media. Uh, They apologized for their members instead. Just amazing. Uh, VFW, you should be ashamed of yourselves for even having him there, much less going after your own members who came to watch this uh, five-time draft dodger at the Veterans of Foreign Wars annual convention. Are you kidding me? Anyway, I digress. Uh, As the negative headlines continue after uh, Trump's meeting in Finland last week with... President Vladimir Putin of Russia, Trump has shifted from blaming American institutions for a bad relationship with Russia to telling people not to believe the facts of what they have seen or heard. On Tuesday, the president effectively said black was white, the New York Times says, when he tweeted without evidence that Russians would be helping Democrats, but not him, in the coming midterm elections. Over the weekend, Trump also claimed with no evidence whatsoever in a series of tweets that his administration's release of top secret documents related to the surveillance of a former campaign aide had confirmed that the Justice Department and the FBI, quote, misled the courts in the early stages of the Russia investigation. But as The New York Times notes correctly, the documents appeared to do the opposite. So should anybody be surprised then that the White House and uh, GOP estimates of uh, what their huge tax cuts for the wealthy and corporations now appear to actually be doing to the deficit? Should anybody be surprised about that? Republicans had used to pretend to care about things like deficits. But I guess they don't anymore. Uh, But, you know, of course, uh, only Republicans will only be concerned about this if they actually hear about it. And since I suspect the wingnut media that Donald Trump insists on in Air Force One and elsewhere, I suspect those folks won't be telling people about this. And neither will the Republicans in Congress who continue to support this crazy president, even while they're pretending sometimes occasionally that they don't. Oh, they disagree with them. They are. They're not taking any actually any actual action on it. So none of those folks are going to tell you about this. The White House is um, certainly not going to be pointing out this reality if they can help it. As Jim Tankersley uh, reports at the Times, in the trough of the Great Recession back in 2009, as companies laid off hundreds of thousands of workers each month, the amount of corporate income taxes collected by the federal government had plunged by almost a third. 
You recall that George W. Bush uh, Great Recession that uh, Barack Obama inherited. That was the largest quarterly drop in corporate income taxes coming into the government, the largest quarterly drop since the Commerce Department began compiling data back in the 1940s. No other period came even close. That is, until this year. In the first half of 2018, corporate tax collections plummeted to historically low levels, According to data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, that is pushing up the federal budget deficit much faster than economists had predicted. Aren't you shocked to learn that? No. No, No, I'm not. You're not? Because I know we talked about this again and again and And again again, right before the GOP tax cuts were pushed through Congress. So, yeah, I'm not surprised. Well, the reason, according to that analysis, is indeed uh, Donald Trump's tax cuts. The new law introduced a standard corporate rate of just 21 percent, down from a high of 35 percent. And it allowed companies to immediately deduct many new investments as companies operate with a lower tax burden and a greater ability to offset what they owe. The federal government is now receiving far less revenue than it would have under the previous tax system. The growing deficit has now forced the Trump administration to adjust its claim that the tax cuts would pay for themselves by generating increased revenue from faster economic growth. The White House's Office of Management Budget uh, said this month that it had revised its forecasts from earlier this year to account for nearly $1 trillion of additional debt over the next decade, almost $100 billion a year in additional deficits on average. Huh. So, yeah, I guess those, uh, you know, those numbers that they used to sell the tax cuts weren't actually accurate at all. Who could have predicted it? This is uh, hindering the government's ability to stabilize its balance sheet, says the Times, before the next recession hits or to at least maintain spending programs that could help blunt the pain of future downturns. Economists equate that process to refilling the city water tower during periods of heavy rain in order to prepare for the next drought. That is not happening this time around. So if that next drought shows up, that next recession shows up, which it certainly will, it always does, we're going to be even more screwed than we were back in the uh, Great Recession, as, you know, people who know stuff tell us. The U.S. annual budget deficit is now expected to top $1 trillion as early as the 2019 fiscal year. The Congressional Budget Office's uh, forecast showing the annual deficit rising to $1.5 trillion over the next 10 years. Adding to the deficit are hundreds of billions of dollars of federal spending increases, which Congress passed and Trump signed into law. From January to June, corporate tax receipts were nearly $50 billion behind. That's close to a third of what they were just one year ago. Kimberly Clausing, an economics professor at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, who studied who studies uh, business uh, taxation, said if we hadn't changed our tax system, you would be expecting rising revenues right around now. Rising revenues, by the way, that might have uh, have helped to pay off some of that deficit spending that Republicans 
uh, actually increased this year and lowered the taxes used to pay for it. But Republicans used to pretend to oppose that kind of deficit spending, at least when it was Barack Obama in the White House, even though we must note, because Trump and the Republicans won't, that Obama lowered the deficit year over year while he was in office. So now corporate collections are said to be running 20 percent, 20 percent below forecasts from the Congressional Budget Office and 10 percent lower than predictions from the Penn Wharton budget model, which is a nonpartisan uh, research initiative that had forecast large deficits as a result of the tax law. So it's even worse than what uh, critics of the tax scheme had predicted, much less those who were blowing smoke about it all, all along. Administration officials uh, dismissed outside estimates back when the bill was being debated, but now their own estimates show something similar to what all of those experts had predicted, an annual deficit that tops $1 trillion from 2019 until 2021. Uh, and then it falls, according to uh, the uh, White House's numbers, uh, but only because of large proposed spending cuts that the administration uh, has said they want, but they have spent little effort on and that Congress has taken no actual steps to pass. But, you know, I wonder if they'll start finally start calling for those cuts in 2021 when there's a new possibly Democratic president who could be in the White House once again. See how this works? Republicans blow up the federal government. Democrats are forced to come in and clean it up. And to do so, they're forced to cut wildly popular social services under the guise of cutting big government, which, as we talked about on yesterday's show at great, great length, it's already a huge Republican lie. They don't actually care about big government. That's just what they use when they're not in power to oppose whoever is in power and also use it as leverage in order to say we've got to cut social security medicaid right. and medicare we just have to and god forbid we should cut military spending god forbid uh democrats uh should insist on cutting military spending because then they'll say oh they hate the military uh democrats hate the military and <sighs> whatever <laughs> whatever BS. Uh, this is the BS that is continuing. That is the reality. Those are that is not pretend nonsense. That's actual documented, independently verifiable data and facts. No matter no matter whether Donald Trump wants Melania to see it on Air Force One or not or whether even he wants to see it or not, that, of course, will not keep Trump from trying to bend reality even if it means pretending things like uh, top U.S. intelligence officials are lying to the public about U.S. intelligence and somehow politicizing it in order to hurt him. Even his own U.S. intelligence officials apparently uh, lying about all of this. So, uh, yeah, Donald Trump's new enemies list and the remarkable question or debate, whatever you want to call it, about whether the president of the United States has and or is committing treason, treason against the United States. The madness continues on the broadcast straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey. 
Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. President Donald Trump's threat on Monday to revoke the security clearances of top former officials critical of his administration left congressional leaders stunned and confused, as AP reports. I think he's just trolling people, honestly, said Republican U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan to reporters on Tuesday. Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell joined Ryan in sort of just leaving the matter up to the White House and uh, ducking the question entirely. Democrats and some Republicans, however, viewed the threat against the six former officials with much more alarm. Senator Chris Coons, Democrat from Delaware, noted the list of those named by the White House uh, was, quote, exactly coincides with those who've been publicly critical of the president. Well, that's true. He gently described the matter as an attack on free speech, the press, and the rights of individuals to speak out in our country, adding very politely that it, quote, really doesn't serve the president well. The threat to deny the officials access to classified information is just one of the latest escalations in the president's war with members of the U.S. intelligence community and pretty much everyone else. On Monday, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders had said the president was, quote, exploring the mechanisms to strip clearance from former CIA director John Brennan and five other former officials who have held some of the most sensitive positions in government, including former FBI director Jim Comey, James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence, former CIA director Michael Hayden, former national security advisor Susan Rice, and former FBI director Andrew McCabe. Two of those former officials, Comey and McCabe, do not actually have security clearances currently, as they were removed when each was fired by the Trump administration from the FBI. Apparently the White House didn't bother to figure that out before threatening to politicize the power of the presidency for such an unprecedented action to undermine top officials seen by Trump as political opponents. Huckabee Sanders said uh, during Monday's press briefing that Trump feels as though the former officials have politicized their positions by accusing Trump of inappropriate contact with Russia. She did not cite specific comments made 
by any of those officials, but the president has reportedly been seething over the backlash to his meeting last week with Russia's Vladimir Putin and the ongoing investigations into Russia's alleged meddling in the 2016 election, whether his campaign aides were involved in the effort and whether he personally obstructed justice to prevent the criminal and counterintelligence probes by U.S. officials. Experts say there is some dispute about whether the president actually has the authority to unilaterally terminate a security clearance, but they said such a move would, in any event, be unprecedented and ill-advised. Stephen Aftergood at the Federation of American Scientists' Project on Government Secrecy said legalities aside, it seems like a terrible mistake to use the security clearance system as an instrument of political vendettas. Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff of California, a ranking member of the House Intelligence Committee, tweeted that, quote, politicizing security clearances to retaliate against former national security officials who criticize the president would set a terrible new precedent, adding an enemies list is ugly, undemocratic and un-American. Outgoing Republican U.S. Senator and another very gentle Trump critic, Senator Bob Corker of Tennessee, said he couldn't believe the Trump administration was even considering revoking security clearances for several ex-government officials, charging that it's the kind of thing that happens in Venezuela. I can't believe that somebody at the White House uh, thought up something like this. I mean, when you're going to start taking retribution against uh, people who are your political enemies in this manner, uh, that's the kind of thing that happens in Venezuela, where I was just recently. So uh, uh, you just don't do that. And I can't, I can't believe they even allowed it to be aired, just to be honest. I mean, it's a, it's a banana republic kind of thing. So. Well, believe it, Senator Corker. It is a Banana Republic kind of thing, and you are a senator in that Banana Republic who is doing nothing about the uh, head of that Banana Republic and his behavior. Christine uh, Todd Whitman, the former Republican governor of New Jersey and former Environmental Protection Agency chief under George W. Bush, she offered perhaps the strongest of statements in response to Trump's joint press conference last week in Helsinki with Vladimir Putin, at least by any major politician, along with Trump's uh, several walkbacks and reversals to those walkbacks in subsequent days, resulting in him once again on Sunday declaring the Russia investigation to be a, quote, big hoax. In uh, her Sunday Los Angeles Times op-ed, Whitman called for sitting Republican lawmakers to turn on the president of the United States and demand that he resign. Well, that sounds more like it. Uh, she wrote, we must put aside the GOP label as hard as that may be and demonstrate the leadership our country needs by calling on the president to step down. Whitman wrote Trump's repeated public dismissals of the intelligence coming from his own deputies is deeply disturbing, along with his walk back of statements last week. And then walking back the walkbacks, it's impossible to keep up, she said. No kidding, Governor. And his behavior warrants a fresh evaluation of whether the president can be trusted with the future of the United States. If he can't take his place at a podium next to an adversarial foreign leader and stand up for America's interests and principles, he should not be president. 
But it was almost certainly uh, a comment from former CIA director John Brennan that most touched off Trump's ire in the days after the Helsinki summit and his subsequent call to uh, remove his security clearance. Uh, This was after Brennan tweeted that Trump's performance in Helsinki, quote, rises to and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors, adding it was nothing short of treasonous. That comment echoed a hashtag used by many Democrats and other Trump opponents on Twitter and Facebook in the days leading up to and following the summit with Putin, describing it as a hashtag treason summit. Trump's failure to publicly condemn or even demand an explanation from Vladimir Putin just days after special counsel Robert Mueller had indicted 11 Russian military intelligence officials for using cyber attacks to interfere in the 2016 presidential election by hacking and releasing DNC and Hillary Clinton emails, accessing U.S. voter registration systems and implanting malware on the computers of state and local election officials was allegedly ordered uh, by Putin himself, and uh, the failure to publicly condemn that or even seek an explanation has led many, in addition to the former CIA director, to describe Trump's behavior and obsequiousness toward Putin during that press conference as, quote, nothing short of treason. But is it really? Treason is the only crime actually described in the U.S. Constitution. Article 3, Section 3, of the U.S. Constitution is quite explicit, and uh, that, according to legal analyst Ernest A. Canning at Bradblog.com this week, who quotes the passage from the U.S. Constitution, quote, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. So did President Trump offer aid and comfort to Russia? And if he did, can they be considered an enemy of the U.S.? Or is that description only useful for, as the Constitution says, someone with whom the U.S. is at war? And if so, are we at war with Russia? There's been no such official declaration, to my knowledge, but does that matter? Should it matter, considering that treason is actually punishable by death in this country? Yes, by death. Here to help us sort all of that out after taking a heroic stab at it this week in an article at bradblog.com is Ernie Canning, who uh, for more years than I can count at this point has has been a bradblog.com legal analyst and contributor. He is a retired attorney, Vietnam veteran, and I should note during the 2016 presidential campaign served as a senior advisor to Veterans for Bernie. Ernie Canning, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Hey, Brad. All right. uh, Before we get to the question of treason and whether the president of the United States may have actually committed it and whether we're actually at war with Russia, you've also been covering uh, legal matters regarding elections and election integrity at the Brad blog for many years. And we have got what I think, uh, since this may be the only good news we get to today, uh, we've got some good and and breaking news from courts uh, regarding elections in both Florida and Iowa that I'd love to hit really quick here, Ernie. Uh, You've had a chance to uh, look at at these uh, rulings very quickly. Let's start in Florida. We got a ruling from uh, a federal court today on a challenge to 
Florida Secretary of State Ken Detzner, uh, his recently announced policy blocking the use of state college campuses for early voting sites. On uh, on what basis was he uh, was he doing that, Ernie? And then we can get to what the court decided today. Well, he, according to the to the court, the basis uh, he had was really baseless, but. I think the real reason Detzner was was trying to block the sites is make it more difficult for students to vote because uh, the, the younger generation that is just coming to voting age is tending to be overwhelmingly progressive. But uh, what he did was he was asked by one of the local uh, jurisdictions mm-hmm. uh, whether or not uh, the, the statute that they have for, for creating these early voting sites, uh, the statute says that you can use certain uh, public uh, institutions like, you know, whether it be a library, things like that. Well, Detzner then said, you know, the statute's negative, and it doesn't say anything about whether the library can be on or off campus, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Detzner took it on himself to say to interpret this to mean that you cannot have any... Um, that you cannot have any of the early voting sites on campus because those are educational institutions. And uh, what the those are, those, are ed- is, those are educational institutions, not um, uh, public, mun- institutions, public institutions. General public institutions. Okay. Yeah, that was his, his rationale. All right. And the interest, the most interesting thing to come out of this case, it's a case that relies on the Twenty Sixth Amendment, which was. The amendment that uh, specifically lowered the voting age from 21 to 18, you know, when I went to Vietnam, I couldn't vote yet, but Mm. I was old enough to go to Vietnam. Uh, But at any rate, uh, it didn't just lower the, it specifically says that you may not discriminate against somebody on the basis of age. So that was the centerpiece of this, this case. And the interesting thing that came out of it is that uh, the number of, uh, of young men and women enrolled, which is 1.1 million in Florida's institutions of higher learning, is higher than the populations of five states and D.C. And what he determined based on the expert testimony that was submitted along with the request for the preliminary injunction is that it would have a disparate effect on uh, college students of, of that age group and adversely impact their ability to vote. So the judge issued a preliminary injunction that's going to force Florida to allow uh, its counties, if they so determine, uh, to open up early voting sites. One of the the witnesses was uh, your friend uh, Ian Sancho, who uh, wanted to be able to open up uh, voting sites in institutions of higher learning. And so So that was was a good decision. And so these are, uh, we're talking about like the college campus, uh, the student unions and so forth that are right there in the center of, uh, of campus. I think they had previously been used as early voting sites in the state of Florida and brought in uh, tens of thousands of voters. And that's what Detzner, as Secretary of State of Florida, the hand-picked Secretary of State, I should add, uh, of the uh, uh, Republican governor there, uh, Rick Scott, uh, he was saying, no, you can't use these and forcing, and this would have, for students to have to, many students who don't have cars and so forth, uh, to go off campus, go miles in order to early vote if they wished. Uh, And I think they had Election Day voting on those campuses, but he was just blocking early voting, if I I remember the case correctly. So now... That's correct. Which is just absurd also on its face. So uh, now the uh, federal court has said... 
no, you can't do that. Uh, you got to al- uh, allow uh, universities and colleges and so forth to use their campuses for early voting, uh, if need be. Well, yeah, it's it's up to the individual. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's up to the individual uh, uh, election officials in each county right. but, to make those decisions. But um, what it, uh, Sancho testified was that. Detzner's interpretation is something that becomes binding on the uh, election officials in each county. So now it's no longer binding, and the individual uh, election officials in each county can can make a determination wh- whether to set up an early voting site at, at a campus. Uh, in in Gainesville, sixty-eight uh, percent of the entire voting age population affiliated with uh, in Gainesville is either affiliated with the University of Florida or nearby Santa Fe College. So. You can see where this uh, makes a major impact on people's ability oh, yeah. to vote. A huge, uh, huge difference. Uh, of course, in a state that is as closely divided as Florida has been historically, and particularly with Ken Detzner's boss, Governor Rick Scott, now running uh, for the U.S. Senate this year uh, in a, a closely watched U.S. Senate race, which could, you know, change the balance of the U.S. Senate depending on how that goes. So there's some good news. Uh, for the state of Florida today, and you also let me know just before airtime today, I haven't had a chance to look at this one at all, but we, uh, very quickly, we had some good news for voters in Iowa as well today? Right. Now, this is a state court decision Mm -hmm. in Iowa, so it's not uh, something that could end up in front of uh, the Trump Supreme Court. Well, that's good. what the court ruled under Iowa's uh, Constitution, number one, makes voting a fundamental right, which is really critical, for upholding voting rights, and what the Republicans in Iowa attempted to do was to reduce the amount of time that you can submit absentee uh, vote ballots from 40 days before the election to 29. They eliminated the last two uh, weekends, and uh, that uh, if an auditor uh, looked at and, and thought that the signature didn't match your original signature on the uh, when you on your registration or something like that that they could uh, either give you time, but if, if they receive the ballots too late, then they would simply not count your vote. And what the court did there was to issue a, a preliminary injunction that prevents the state from enforcing that. They have to leave open the full 40 days they had previously. Hmm. And uh, they, based on expert testimony that non-experts tend to find, uh, erroneously find signatures don't match, that uh, yep. they determined that that provision uh, had to be stricken altogether. Good. That is that is good news because this is one of the reasons that uh, I, I recommend strongly against vote by mail unless you actually have to vote by mail for some reason if you can't vote at the polling place on Election Day because a lot of those ballots uh, get judged uh, and tossed out based on signatures that may not match uh, what the voter had uh, signed years and years ago. And the uh, analysis is based on people who are not handwriting experts. So uh, I'm glad that at least in Iowa, the court, at least to a certain extent, has uh, stopped that and has stopped the Republican attempt to limit early voting. So there's some good news from Florida and Iowa. We'll take it for real now. Quick, real, yeah. quick, Brad. Yeah. real quick, Brad. There was yeah. one thing I think you and I have always agreed on. The one exception to your reluctance to, to recommend uh, absentee ballots has to do with those states where your alternative is to vote on mm. a 100% unverifiable touchscreen voting yep. system, then you're better off submitting your absentee ballot on in writing if you can. You're right, absolutely. Although, uh, if you do that, it's best to uh, bring in your absentee ballot and deliver it in person. 
uh, at your polling place on Election Day or at the county headquarters. Uh, check your local jurisdiction for rules. But you're absolutely right. Thanks for pointing that out. Uh, let me move on to uh, to this issue of whether or not the president of the United States may have committed treason. As many Democrats and uh, even the former CIA director John Brennan have been arguing uh, due to Trump's friendliness with Russia and its president, uh, even after Robert Mueller had indicted 11 Russian military intelligence officials for interfering in the 2016 election, I have long argued, Ernie, that uh, even if the uh, worst uh, the worst of the allegations against Donald Trump are true, that it cannot actually be treason because the Constitution is very specific on what treason actually is we'd have to be at war with someone before anybody can be considered to have committed treason with them you dug into that assertion this week at bradblog.com am i right or wrong uh, when i say no this could not be treason even if it's objectionable well i can say that you might be right and you might be wrong because it's a completely unsettled area of law um the first the question is are we at war with russia and that there are two two things that you look at with that. One is um, uh, is uh, when does a war begin? And uh, we've had I, I cited in the piece you know mm-hmm. some examples. Uh, Lincoln uh, had ordered the Navy to blockade southern ports right after the attack on Fort Sumter, and even though there was no declaration of war, and the the court basically recognized, well, look, when the attack occurred, we were at war, and the way they, they, the Supreme Court worded it back then was that Lincoln was bound to meet it in the shape it presented itself without waiting for Congress to baptize it with a name. So they're basically recognizing if the United States comes under attack, we're at war, and it's just a matter of time. And the same thing happened at Pearl Harbor. Uh, everybody... Uh, immediately say that the U.S. Uh, became at war with Japan the moment the bombs started falling on the American fleet. And uh, Roosevelt himself asked uh, Congress to declare that, that the United States had been at war since December 7, 1941, not uh, the next day when they actually issued their declaration. And the same distinction is re- recommended uh, is recognized in the War Powers Resolution, which uh, uh, allows a president to initiate or use uh, force if there is a national emergency uh, created by an attack on the United States. So, the, so a war, in, a declaration of war, in a sense, can be backdated if suddenly Congress decided to go to, uh, to to come together and declare war on, in this case, Russia. They could say we were at war since. Uh, such and such date when such and such attack happened, let's say back in 2016, if they wanted to. But they have not done that. Uh, but obviously. it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not at war, even though no formal uh, action has been taken by Congress, at least under, within the meaning of the War Powers Resolution, uh, uh, because that basically uh, establishes that we can be at war once the moment that we're attacked and the president can act. It doesn't have to go to Congress in order to act. The, the real murky area that I see is not so much when we can be at act at war, but whether or not a cyber attack mm-hmm. can amount to an act of war. And the only thing we have even close to that, there was in 2013, the Obama administration had conducted a secret legal review in which uh, uh, the DOJ supposedly concluded that the president had unilateral authority to launch a preemptive strike if the United States detects that there's credible evidence of a major digital attack looming from abroad. Well, that you can't 
judge what, whether or not that's an accurate uh, assessment because they've kept the, the opinion secret, so who knows. Uh, the real question is, in this case, it isn't just that the United States has come under attack with respect to its, its election itself, but it has come under a cyber attack in which they have penetrated our, our infrastructure, our critical mm-hmm. infrastructure as well. So it, are we at war? I don't know. And <laughs> the, problem is, the problem is that even if you could charge that what Trump did uh, uh, amounted to uh, uh, you know, giving aid and comfort to an enemy, uh, I could see a defense attorney coming in and saying, you know, it, it, even if, if what you deem that, that would otherwise be treason, if the court ultimately finds it was at war, well, how are we to, how was Trump to know that at the time he engaged in the actions? Right. Uh, and, and, uh, on the other hand, you know, um, the Rosenbergs were, were executed not for treason, but for conspiracy to engage in espionage, espionage. against the United States. And, yeah. and the interesting thing here is, for example, when Trump turned over, um, highly classified information to the Russian ambassador in the, during an Oval Office meeting. If it had been anyone other than the United States president, he could have been charged with, with espionage for doing that. But because it's the president, the president can declassify anything he wants. So that may not be. The interesting feature here, and it's interesting because we now uh, 51% of the latest poll believe that, that uh, basically what... what uh, Christopher Steele concluded early on was that there is a likelihood that President Trump is a compromised Russian asset. Uh, I was kind of surprised to see that number go over the majority of Americans, but there's so much that he has done. Um, you know, you could say, well, we don't have, it hasn't been proven that he's a compromised Russian asset. And my thought to that was, I, I, it, I recall the words of a of a uh, uh, Bob Dylan tune that uh, you don't need a weatherman to see which way the wind blows. Uh, <laughs> the most disturbing thing I've seen out of this whole thing with his denials, and you know, I could see part of the reason why why uh, uh, Brennan uh, concluded as he did, because he w- he supposedly was amongst the officials that showed uh, Trump on uh, 2017 showed him emails and texts from high-level uh, Russian military in- uh, intelligence mm-hmm. agency GRU. Uh, officials that say that uh, Putin personally ordered the cyber attack uh, on the 2016 election. Well, and and you could, uh, therefore, uh, when he calls it high crimes and misdemeanors, which is, uh, you know, the bar for impeachment, that sounds appropriate to me. But calling it treason... That seems another matter. Maybe I'm too touchy about it, but I'm also touchy about, uh, you know, the idea of going to war or declaring that we're at war, whether it's with Russia or anyone else. And uh, Ernie Canning, I know that you and I have actually uh, debated, quibbled over the years about whether cyber attacks can can be considered an act of war. I actually... Think I actually believe that they can, and I, I, I think you and I had debated that some time ago, and uh, you didn't necessarily agree that hacking was an act of war. I actually think it is, but that also then means that the U.S. is at war with just about everybody because we cyber attack pretty much everyone, including Russia. And so I'm just, you know, I, I don't like the idea that uh, suddenly... Uh, you know, we're at war with everyone in the world, which means everyone can also, uh, uh, you know, retaliate against such a war. I think we need to be very careful when we start uh, tossing around words like war and treason. 
I, I agree with you with, uh, with rec- just about everything you said just now. The thing is, I would add that it, I don't think it's necessary. I do think that the issue of whether Trump is, is a compromised uh, Russian asset makes him, uh, there are possibility of that makes him an unacceptable risk to the mm. U.S. national security and reason for impeachment. I wanted to add something that just came up yeah. with respect to his denials. And this came up, actually, Rachel Maddow covered this last night, but I, uh, and I think Democracy Now! had it as well. If you recall in the article, I quote this from Reuters correspondent uh, Jeff Mason, mm-hmm. uh, his question he posed to Vladimir Putin. He said, did you want President Trump to win the election, and did you direct any of your officials to help him do that? And Putin said, yes, I did, yes, I did, and explain why. Um, when the White House has taken both the video mm-hmm. and the audio and deleted the first part of that, which is, did you want President Trump to win the election? And they've included only a, did you direct any of your officials to help him do that? Okay. Uh, the the uh, Kremlin has de- deleted that entire portion of the conversation from its version of the transcript. Well, Trump now has turned around, and it kind of shows you that he's taking a page out of or George Orwell's 1984, by after deleting those, Trump turned around and tweeted and says, yes, I'm concerned that Putin is going to interfere with the 2018 election, quote, to benefit the Democrats, quote. And then he adds, because, quote, no president has been tougher on Russia than me, end of quote. Yeah, they just removed that question. Did you want President uh, Trump to win the election? They just removed that, both from the written transcript and the video at whitehouse.gov. I checked it uh, late last night. I didn't check it again today, but it had not yet been uh, uh, corrected by then. Um, So, uh, or well, Rebellion is not a question. High crimes and misdemeanor is not a question. Uh, Even a compromised Russian asset uh, is less of a question, at least to me, than the idea of uh, treason. Uh, Let me uh, very quick before we got to get out here, Ernie, but let me give you... uh, This quote from uh, Michael McFaul, a former U.S. ambassador to Russia under President Obama. He was actually uh, named by Putin at that press conference in Helsinki as one of the American officials that uh, Russia would like to have questioned in exchange for allowing Mueller's team to oversee uh, Russian questioning of those 11 indicted military intelligence officials. Uh, McFall was on Stephen Colbert last night uh, on The Late Show on um, on Tuesday night, had this exchange with Colbert on the matter of being at war with Russia. Donald Trump said that guys like you and the people who criticize him want us to go to war. They'd like to see us get into some sort yeah. of shooting match with Russia. I, let's just be clear. There's no threat of war with Russia right now. Uh, but there is a threat of Russia intervening in our elections, as they did in 2016, which our president won't admit to. There is a threat of them threatening their neighbors. They annexed Crimea and Ukraine. They uh, are threatening other countries there. And I say we have to go back to containment, not because I'm some cold warrior that dreams of going back to that era, uh, but because it's necessary to push back on Vladimir Putin. And tragically, unfortunately, that's not what President Trump did in Helsinki. 
So, uh, Ernie, I'll just uh, exit question here. Michael McFall has as much skin in the game at this point as anyone uh, being named by Putin himself at that press conference. He says uh, we're not at war, or at least uh, there is no danger of us going to war in the uh, anytime soon in the future with Russia. Should we feel better about that? And that does that just undercut the entire notion that there is actually treason at the heart of any of this? I still don't know whether or not there's treason, but there's a basic principle that appellate courts uh, engage in that I think the rest of us should. If it's not necessary to reach the decision, then you don't decide it. And it isn't necessary in order to establish that Trump is a threat to national security or that he should be removed from office that you come to the conclusion that he be impeached. And if I can add one other thing with respect to the upcoming election, uh, everybody talks about the, the possibility that, you know, if the Democrats retake the House, they'll be able to initiate impeachment proceedings, which they probably should. But I think the real important thing is the ability to use their oversight ability for these people that are in these various agencies like the EPA who appear, appear to be violating uh, the Clean Water Act, for example, to be able to bring them into Congress and to, to hold them to account to how they're violating uh, provisions of law they're supposed to enforce. And I think that's equally important to any issues of impeachment and uh, certainly uh, more important than whether or not uh, what Trump did amounted to treason. Ernie Canning, uh, legal analyst and contributor at Bradblog.com for many, many years. You can read his article detailing all of this uh, at Bradblog.com, headlined Trump's Helsinki Remarks, a likely betrayal, but may not amount to treason. Uh, Ernest, greatly appreciate you joining us today. Look forward to talking to you again in the near future. You bet, Brad. All right, quick break, and uh, a few minutes left as long as we're talking about uh, things that have to do with Russia and reality. Uh, well, quick break, and I'll explain after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Maybe why it's a question that's on your mind. But reality used to be a friend of mine. Oh, used to be a friend of all of ours. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. All right, it was on uh, yesterday. Uh, that this news broke, but now it's being confirmed by the White House today, only a full day later, and uh, so now everyone is picking it up. But yesterday, a top Kremlin aide uh, said that Russia is not ready to accept President Trump's invitation to a second, meet, uh, second summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin in the U.S., Yuri Yushikov said uh, Russia agrees that there should be another meeting, but did not formally agree to the White House's fall invitation. 
after the uh, Yushikov said, according to a Reuters report, that after the summit, you know, we're talking about the uh, Helsinki summit after the summit, you know what kind of atmosphere there is around its outcome. I think it would be wise to let the dust settle and then we can discuss all these questions in a businesslike way. But not now. So uh, this was yesterday. The Kremlin said, uh, thanks, but no thanks, Mr. Trump. We're not interested in having another summit this quickly after the first one that was such a disaster. They politely declined. They politely declined uh, yesterday, but uh, the White House did not acknowledge that decline until today. Um, this was with the, the Trump and the White House press secretary, uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, were saying last week that preparations were now underway for a second meeting with Putin, this time in Washington, D.C., this fall. You will be shocked to learn that was all a lie because Russia had declined. And today the White House was finally forced to concede as much. Uh, although I love the way that uh, AP, their headline here, who's usually pretty good on this, but their headline today, Trump delays proposed Putin meeting until 2019. What? Trump delays the proposed Putin meeting. Oh, come on, AP. I know. Tell me about it. That's the headline. The story is a little bit better, but uh, the Trump administration sought to fend off accusations. The president is too soft on Russia. On Wednesday, uh, putting off a proposed second summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin as members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee peppered Secretary of State Mike Pompeo with questions about last week's summit in Finland. The White House said President Donald Trump had opted against trying to meet with Putin this fall. I have a problem with that since, of course, it assigns an agency to Trump that he did not have. He did not choose this, so reporting it as if he did seems to me rather incorrect. Well, you're just too rough on AP. Maybe they don't read Reuters over there at AP. National Security Advisor John Bolton cited Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russia interference in the 2016 election as the reason for the delay. That's not what Russia cited, but okay, that's what Bolton cited, uh, although many members of Congress had objected to the meeting and said that Putin would not be welcome on Capitol Hill. Bolton said in his statement, the president believes that the next bilateral meeting with President Putin should take place after the Russia witch hunt is over. So we've agreed that it will be after the first of the year. While the statement signaled optimism that Mueller uh, that the Mueller probe would be completed by the end of this year. No timetable has been given for when it will be uh, wrapped up and it could very well stretch into 2019. But. For now, we will let them pretend that right after the first of the year, they'll be meeting with Russia at the White House. Even though Sarah Huckabee Sanders said that they were already preparing for the meeting this fall. Starting to think that this White House may not be in touch with reality. But we are, and uh, hopefully you are. My thanks to our producer today, as ever, Desi Doyen. To my guest, Brad Blog's Ernest A. Canning. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. 
And my thanks, as ever, to those of you who keep us on the air doing what we staying in touch with the reality that we try to stay in touch with every day by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. We could not do it without you. So thank you. All right. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Maybe why it's a question that's on your mind. But reality used to be a friend of mine. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Reality used to be a friend of mine. Please don't ask me because I don't.